There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's January 2016, and Jeremy Corbyn, the 32 years a Labour-backed bencher, giving speeches at small gatherings of the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, is now in the big studio at the BBC, talking to the nation about leading the country. I've been elected leader of the party. It's a great honour, it's a great responsibility. But you don't think... I'm doing my best... Ooh, you're going too fast. I'm doing my best to try to ensure we change the terms of debate in Britain about the kind of society we want to live in, the grotesque levels of inequality we face, the housing crisis that affects almost every family in this country. Those are the issues that I'm campaigning very strongly on. Party membership has grown up, party activity has increased. All that's surely good for democracy. Very good for democracy. He sounds relaxed, confident almost, unastonished by his own extraordinary rise. But uniquely among modern major party political leaders, he not only doesn't enjoy the support of his parliamentary colleagues, most of them want to get rid of him. I'm David Aronovich from Tortoise Media. This is Eight Years Hard Labour, Episode 2, The Chicken Coup. When Jeremy Corbyn was elected as Labour leader in the autumn of 2015, there weren't enough Corbynite MPs to fill a camper van. So Corbyn turned to former critics and opponents to fill the big jobs. His close ally, the veteran John McDonnell, became Shadow Chancellor, but his rival for the leadership, Andy Burnham, took the Home Office portfolio and the distinctly non-Corbynite Hilary Benn was appointed to Shadow the Foreign Secretary. Lower down the order, a newcomer to Parliament got the shadow immigration role. It was Sir Keir Starmer's first political portfolio. From the off, the leader of the opposition's office, or Lotto, was a fraught environment, and its relationship with Labour HQ, a problem. We weren't given a budget. We had half as many staff as Ed Miliband had had for the first, certainly first three or four months, until after Christmas. Andrew Fisher was Corbyn's lead policy adviser. So we were trying to run an operation with new and inexperienced people, with half as many of them as well. I mean, it's just, you know, I think we were being set up to fail. There were things like, you know, we needed new computers. They were crashing all the time in the office. It took, I think, months. I mean, I, I can't remember whether it was three or six, but it was a long time. It felt very long at the time before a new laptop I'd ordered came through. And yet, you know, you go into HQ and they've got, all got brand new laptops they're working on but there's none available for Lotto. Then there was the pressure. Matt Zarb-Cousin was on Corbyn's press team. It was just so, so difficult for anyone to, to function in that environment. It was literally 18-hour days where you would wake up, you know, half five, you'd have things to deal with at that moment because 
HQ weren't taking no taking or dealing with those media requests. Um, they weren't rebutting things. You didn't want a story to sort of catch catch on because in the age of social media, when a story isn't rebutted immediately, then other outlets pick it up and then it becomes a narrative. And then by that time, it's it becomes sort of what people perceive as the truth. From the very start, the stories kept coming. There was the row when Corbyn wouldn't sing the national anthem at a Battle of Britain memorial service. And another when he sacked a junior shadow minister, Pat McFadden, for implicitly criticising his stand on Western responsibility for terrorist attacks. Then, that March, a list was leaked in which his office had carefully grouped Labour figures in one of five categories of loyalty. Kat Nealon is political editor of Tortoise, and she recalls this unprecedented bit of political triage. Jeremy Corbyn's team had put every single Labour MP into a column based on their loyalty to the leader, from core loyalists all the way through to neutral but not hostile, and then the active hostile group. The thing is, though, in some cases they'd got it wrong and either under or overestimated how loyal or hostile a given MP actually was. Some backbenchers kind of found it funny. One theoretically neutral MP told me, what do I have to do to get into hostile? But it resulted in yet more bad blood within Labour and a lot of very public embarrassment that was seized on by the Tories. Keir Starmer, for anyone paying attention to this junior immigration minister, was down as core group plus, meaning not the immediate inner circle, but someone to be broadly trusted. We've got the spreadsheet of which Labour MP is on which side. The, look, there are, f- there are five categories. Mr Speaker, we've got core support. Uh, I think you can include me in that lot. Uh, we've got core plus. The chief whip's being a bit quiet because she's in hostile. Mr Speaker, I, I thought I had problems. The creator of the list wouldn't have had to go very far to discover which of the MPs were most hostile, according to Andrew Fisher. I mean, I had politicians shouting in my face, two inches from my face shouting with their spittle kind of bouncing off my cheeks, literally, which wasn't very nice. But, you know, there were a number of instances like that, which just, it was a very hostile environment to go into. And I remember, I remember going home, like, in the first week and literally weeping. And I, I've... Don't, I'm not somebody who cries easily either. Sam Tarry was working for the TSSA union, but was very close to the Corbyn inner circle. From the off, you know, the sort of Corbyn project was under a huge amount of sustained, you know, sort of, you know, his firefighting daily was just under a, a huge attack, given no kind of moment really to, to even breathe. But however much external pressure the Corbyn office was under, some involved saw the dysfunction as beginning inside. Josh Simons was a young policy advisor in the Corbyn office for six months in 2016. My broad impression of the operation, coming in with no idea about how politics and political operations work, was that everyone sort of showed up surprisingly late, that meetings were not kind of zippy and professional. And the main thing that was striking to me is that, you know, when Corbyn walked in the room and there was a decision to be made about, you know, a policy or whether to pursue a particular research programme or whatever, It didn't feel sort of high-energy, rigorous, there wasn't much debate. Simons saw the leader's personality as being part of the problem. He was emotionally closed off, uninterested, stubborn, really, really stubborn in a certain kind of way. And that meant that he was unable to lead fundamentally. And that was true of, you know, 
a good few of the people around him too, they were not emotionally willing to listen. When it came to Corbyn himself, one person's detachment is another person's zen. Andrew Fisher just saw his boss as slow to anger. It was very pluralistic. Everyone could speak, could speak at length even, you know, could speak as critically as they liked of the leader, and they did sometimes. And Jeremy just sat there and was like, yeah, OK, that's your view, next person. You know, there was no... He was quite relaxed, actually. Um, I mean, he might have come out and, you know, whispered something under his breath occasionally, but very moderate by most people's terms, it has to be said, because Jeremy's very polite to a fault, actually. As the office went from crisis to crisis, two distinct stories emerged. They arose from the division of responsibility between the party HQ and Lotto. Sam Tarry. The vast majority of the time that Corbyn and you know, his people were in charge, they didn't have control of the Labour Party machine. And so also what happened was that, you know, almost alternative parallel structures were set up in terms of staffing and stuff like that. And that obviously created problems when you've got two parts of the organisation pulling in different directions. To Matt Zarb's cousin, hunkered down in Lotto, it was clear what was going on and who was to blame. In a normal leadership, you would have the support of HQ and they would act as a kind of civil service for like, a, a, a sort of civil service for the leadership, for the leader's office. And this just wasn't the case. They were actively working against us. So what it did was it put a lot of pressure on the media team, which was short-staffed in and of itself in the leader's office, but also because we were having to deal with all those other things. We, we, you know, the party wasn't on our side. There was such visceral hostility towards Jeremy and the left, and uh, they were factionally motivated. They wanted their people, quote-unquote, to be in control of the party. This wasn't supposed to happen, quote-unquote, and it was just a blip, and we'll just revert to back to where we were before. Uh, it was very, very difficult for us to get on the front foot because of how much we were having to deal with. And that was by design, I think. I think that they knew that. They knew that if they kept us under-resourced and they you know, kept briefing against us and kept causing problems and trouble. I mean, there was one particular journalist for the Sunday Times who was getting so much stuff from HQ. Like, so much. Like, to the extent that we, we figured out that, you know, there was a, a personal relationship between them and senior people in HQ, right? Josh Simons, who subsequently went to work for the Labour Party proper, saw it completely differently. So I saw both of the inside of those worlds uh, up close for quite a long period of time. And, you know, the quality of the people and the professionalism of how they ran their operation were, were just completely incomparable. There were certain things that, for instance, on my policy team, you know, there was a view that there needed to be policy processes, that they needed to consult outside stakeholders, that they needed to happen according to agreed timetables, that there would be outputs, that those outputs would be like spell check properly, you know, all these sort of basic things. And there was a certain standard below which some people in uh, HQ were just completely unwilling to compromise. And, you know, consistently, those standards were not being met with any sort of straightforwardness. In early 2016, an attempt was made to bolster Lotto's organisation and stiffen the leader's spine with the appointment as Chief of Staff of Carrie Murphy, a close associate of Len McCluskey, the boss of Unite, the most powerful trade union in the country. Along with former Guardian columnist, now Director of Communication Seamus Milne, Unite official Andrew Murray and McCluskey himself, Murphy became known as one of the four M's who influenced the Labour leader.
Carrie is a is a force of nature. She's, uh, you know, she. I mean, Jeremy needs to be made. You know, Jeremy doesn't like taking any decisions, uh, which is not unusual actually for leaders. It's uh, you know you need structures to force them, and you know Carrie forced him to take decisions. You know, off, you know, so that was probably you know an improvement. Over at the grassroots campaigning organisation Momentum, John Landsman watched these developments with dismay. To have Unite, in, you know, leading the leader's office, leading the, the party structure, and with lots of other pro-Unite appointments, and, you know, was deeply unhelpful. Far too many of the appointments were people who Unite wanted for the jobs. But more importantly, most of the, you know, almost anyone in the leader's office who had a kind of trade union background came from Unite. You know, there were no, you know, and that is utterly, you know, utterly foolish. It was utterly foolish. It was a completely top-down operation. You know, lots of people assume that as chair of momentum, I might have had, might have been, you know, involved, informed, consulted. And, you know, there were occasions when that happened, um, but the you know most of the occasions when that happened were when I went into the you know I I had a I had a House of Commons pass I could go into the office and you know just hang around and talk to people and get to have two minutes with Jeremy you know because of course you know controlling access to Jeremy is you know to any leader is always an, an issue so I could force access to Jeremy and you know there were lots of things that Jeremy privately said he wasn't happy with. Well, let's ask this question very boldly. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn felt bullied by Len McCluskey? I think Jeremy probably felt bullied by a number of people, um, but, you know, including Carrie. I'm sure he felt bullied by Carrie. And, I, and I'm sure, yeah, I think he, he will have felt bullied by Len. And Len, you know, is a, you know was a very powerful person. I mean, he, you know, he's a powerful person in any to you know in any leadership that pays you know respect to the trade you know to the trade union's role in the labor party but however much attention the internal world required the outside one would eventually intrude and this external political world was about to be turned upside down we are approaching one of the biggest decisions this country will face in our lifetimes whether to remain in a reformed European Union or to leave. The choice goes to the heart of the kind of country we want to be and the future that we want for our children. It's a persistent myth that everyone expected the 2016 referendum to go the way of Remain. In many Labour seats, MPs were reporting from early on that the Remain case was not getting a hearing on the doorsteps. And there was a strong feeling too that the heart of the Labour leader wasn't in trying hard to get the vote out. As in this famous TV appearance. On a scale of 1 to 10, okay. where 1 is couldn't really care less about the EU and 10 is I'm jumping on the couch like Tom Cruise on Oprah. <laughs> How passionate are you about them staying in the EU? Oh, I'd put myself in the upper half of the 5 to 10, so we're looking at 7, 7.5. Ooh, not quite. Maybe 7, 7.5. You're, well, you're, well, you're more than welcome to jump on the couch if you want, Jeremy. Well, yeah. Actually, Corbyn's Euroscepticism had been a secret that many young Corbynistas who also supported the EU had kept from themselves. 
But had he been that anti-EU? Jeremy's always been Eurosceptic. That's not a big secret. He's always, you know, felt that it's been a bit weighted towards, let's say, neoliberal economics. Obviously, Thatcher wanted to join it, and he was been an MP since 1983. So his concern was what he described as a Tory Brexit, which I think is largely consistent with his Euroscepticism, because what he's saying is the EU could be better because, yeah, seven and a half out of ten, it could be better, it could be more left-wing, could have a Lexit, or could have a, a left-wing Europe, European, European Union, right? Given how passionate Corbyn could be on other matters, this might seem disingenuous. The MP from Exeter, former Labour minister and staunch pro-European Ben Bradshaw, certainly thought so. And I, I am still of the view that if Jeremy Corbyn had not been the leader of the Labour Party, we would not have lost the Brexit referendum. If we had had a credible leader who uh, could have articulated a coherent, passionate, Labour-based argument for us staying in the European Union, I think we would have won that referendum. This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. The day after that genuinely historic vote, David Cameron announced his resignation as Prime Minister. But in my view, we should aim to have a new Prime Minister in place by the start of the Conservative Party conference in October. Delivering stability will be He went voluntarily, humming a tune as he disappeared back inside number 10. Right. Many Labour MPs, aghast at the result and battling Corbyn supporters in their constituencies, have decided that their leader should also depart involuntarily, if necessary. Ben Bradshaw. We were beginning to see the level of nastiness that, that, was, uh, that, that became the hallmark of his leadership. Um, the hounding of, of moderate uh, MPs, threats to deselect mod uh, moderate MPs, uh, the deterioration in the standard of meetings, um, the return to our local Labour parties of people we hadn't seen since the worst days of the 1980s, uh, kind of screaming trots and grumpy communists. Uh, and, and, and we were all fighting these battles in our own constituencies to try to persuade uh, uh, sensible Labour members to stay in the party uh, against this backdrop. Corbyn's close advisers saw the aggression as coming from the opposite camp. Monday nights, usually, there's a meeting where Jeremy would be taking questions from the MPs and and they're always full of people just hurling abuse at him. It was appalling. It's just bullying. It's bu it bullying, um, really hor horrible. Uh, so, because for me as well, it was like a bit weird because I'd never really thought of them as like political enemies until I got that job, and and then I realised that they were just like they were from a different party. It was so so hostile. And also, some of the biggest Corbyn critics were not outside the tent; they were holding the pole. When you've decided, because Jeremy's Jeremy, to they have a kind of pluralist approach to a shadow cabinet and you've got everyone from all wings of the party in the shadow cabinet. I mean, it's asking for trouble. Um, I mean, obviously we know that in hindsight, but that, that's Jeremy. Jeremy we thought, he obviously got a big majority from the, from the membership. We're going to try to unite everyone behind the programme 
that's kind of you know social democracy and yeah we'll fight you know this, this was his vision he thought that that could happen he, he you know and, and very very quickly it became apparent that it couldn't shortly after david cameron's resignation there was a shadow cabinet meeting later that morning which was uh tense for not entirely obvious reasons was odd just had a ve- i just remember it being having a very odd fit. i mean it was never a warm cozy place to be in those shadow cabinet meetings at that point but there was definitely some tension in the air and something going on i remember hillary ben speaking uh and being quite confrontational in a way that he wasn't usually actually i mean he had been over syria a bit but even then actually there was a kind of still a coziness to their like we disagree but it's an honest disagreement but uh, there were a number who were just very silent very glum and looking down all the time not trying to get eye contact so there was a briefing i think to the observer by hillary ben or hillary ben's team about there being a a vote of no confidence at that point it was just a feeling of unease it wasn't until the sunday well late saturday night early sunday morning that we then found out and then jeremy i think phoned him up at about one in the morning and sacked him the mass exodus began at 1.15 a.m. when Jeremy Corbyn had to sack the son of Tony Benn, his great political hero. At this critical time for our country following the EU referendum result, we need strong and effective leadership of the Labour Party. I told Jeremy Corbyn last night that I no longer had confidence in his leadership and he dismissed me from the shadow cabinet. And I want to thank him for having given me the chance to serve our party. Thank you very much. I was in a car park in Arundel with my family on Sunday morning as all this was happening. And that was a lovely day out. It was supposed to be a nice family day out of, you know, reliving my youth and passing on the family tradition to my son. But, uh, yeah, I spent all of it on the phone in a car park trying to get reception. Yeah, so then the day after, that, that set off a domino effect. And then you had a lot of resignations that followed that i think they were going to i think they wanted to do the vote of no confidence first and then once they've done the vote of no confidence then they then jeremy doesn't go then they'll just all resign one by one uh whatever it was morning noon noon and night uh, i think for the summer which was memorable summer no party leader conservative or labor in opposition or in power had ever previously survived not having the confidence of the party's mps From Margaret Thatcher to Boris Johnson, lose your MPs and your resignation must follow. If not at first, then when your appointed colleagues resign their offices. Rebellious Labour MPs had good reason to expect Corbyn to do what everyone else had done in a similar situation and go. Joining the Shadow Cabinet resignations, apparently reluctantly, was Keir Starmer. Tom Baldwin, Ed Miliband's former director of communications, who is writing a biography of Keir Starmer, was watching the rebellion develop. Starmer was very reluctant to join that. He was one of the last frontbenchers to resign. He was at the time shadow immigration minister. Another poison chalice he'd been given. And he's one of the very last to resign. And in his resignation letter, he makes it clear that it's with sadness and regret and that he's never criticised Corbyn in public. He's not going to speak out against him. He thought that was the wrong time to move against Corbyn. He thought he'd only just been elected and party members would want to give the guy another chance. Others didn't see it that way. There were some heated, horrible meetings. It was so, so hostile. 
um, yeah, shouting at him, shouting that he should resign. Kinnock, I think, even gave a speech in there. So we had the peers in there as well. And everyone, everyone was just hurling abuse at him. And obviously, he just took it. And afterwards, we would talk to the press in the, in the corridors. And Seamus, again, and Kevin were saying, if, if, you want to, if you want to change the leader, you have to stand a candidate. As expected, Corbyn lost the no-confidence vote among MPs by 172 votes to 40. Uh, 95% turnout among MPs, which is very high. Overwhelming number of MPs there deciding that they don't back uh, Jeremy Corbyn. 172 against him and backing that motion of no confidence. Lost it and didn't resign. When it happened, I was actually driving from Cornwall to London, um, you know, as soon as, you know, the news broke on the radio, I was obviously on the phone to, you know, Momentum and to the leader's office. My immediate thought was the insanity of forcing another election. I thought it was a gift to us. We were in difficulties, you know. I mean, we had had a honeymoon period after the first election, but it had subsided. My immediate reaction was, we will beat them by a bigger margin. And, you know, we've, we've got lots of data on people who were registered supporters. I mean, they thought they could bully Jeremy into resigning, but he wasn't going to resign. So... Our line was that if they want to have a leadership contest, then they need to get the nominations and stand the candidate. And then it became like, who's the candidate? Because they wanted Jeremy to resign. Then they wanted to pick the leader, the PLP, and have an unopposed leader, right? So it would have been someone really kind of right wing in the Labour Party context. The chorus of Labour MPs, activists and grandees calling for Jeremy Corbyn to go continues to mount. We heard earlier from Lord Kinnock, all Labour's living former leaders have now added their voices. But one of Mr Corbyn's most loyal and important allies in the Labour movement is standing firm, Len McCloskey, leader of the Unite movement. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, now, you are still in the position where, despite everything, you think Jeremy Corbyn should stay until the next election and fight as a Labour leader. Yes, I do. And to be honest, Andrew, it's unhelpful for ex-leaders to be wheeled out. Neil is... Uh, uh, you know, a nice man, but the reality is he was leader of the Labour Party for eight years and lost two elections. Ed Miliband, leader of the Labour Party for five years and lost an election. Gordon Brown, 13 years at the top of our party, including Prime Minister, lost an election. It's not right that they are... On that basis, you'd be willing out Tony Blair. It's not... No, I won't rule Tony Blair out, but the reality is that grandees being dragged out to be part of this unedifying coup is quite outrageous. I mean, the reality is that this has been a political lynching of a decent man, undermined, humiliated, attacked, in order to push him out. 
Corbyn would take his fight to the membership. But who would be the rival to take him on? A big beast, perhaps. Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper, Hilary Benn. Liam Byrne, former Chief Secretary to the Treasury, saw how the great leadership challenge became a bit of ineffective improvisation. You have to make quite quick decisions at that particular moment of turbulence. There was just lots and lots of conversations going on inside the Parliamentary Labour Party until uh, late at night, every night. People wanted someone from the soft left, not the old right of the party. Um, and so, you know, basically through a process of elimination, um, but also, you know, ultimately those who want to take on those roles have to kind of step forward and mobilise. And so it came about that the man who stepped forward was Owen Smith, MP for Pontypridd since 2010. Colleagues, comrades, friends, uh, I am so proud to be stood here before you today, so proud to be addressing you, launching my bid to be the next leader of the Labour Party, and more importantly than that, the next Labour Prime Minister of this country. You cannot imagine how the pride swells inside me. And, you know, ultimately there was a sense that Owen was going to be the best uh, contender in, in a campaign. Fellow Welsh MP, Carolyn Harris. I just think, I backed Owen thinking that whoever, whoever was taking this challenge on was going to be taking on a poison chalice and that it was going to be a very, very dirty, difficult fight, and it was. Dirty or not, it soon became clear that one side had the troops and the organisation, and it wasn't Owen Smith's. Once again, Sam Tarry was helping organise the Corbyn campaign. We needed to actually have a proper operation, that we needed to kind of keep some of the people that had previously been involved in running the leader's office away. And actually, you have to legally have that separation, if you see what I mean, because the campaigning thing can't have Labour Party staff working on it. Does that make sense? Obviously, you might have some liaison in the background or whatever, but you know they couldn't be working on the campaign unless they'd taken a proper leave of absence. And it was interesting because actually one of the things that happened was that suddenly the media started to say, well, hold on, if only these guys were functioning as well as this, if only um, the operation was as slick as this, if only the communication of the ideas was as effective as this, normally they would have been in this, in this situation we were in. We had obviously been developing our kind of digital sort of networks, you know, the sort of ecosystem through Facebook and you know a whole variety of other social media platforms. What we managed to to do, I think, was was even bigger than the first campaign, which had been a bit of a shoestring. This time, there was more resource behind it. We had a huge sort of staffing sort of detail. Um, you know, it actually felt, to be honest, more like running a general election campaign. And by that time, remember, they were like north of what, what 600,000 members. So it was pretty huge in terms of the, the base kind of electorate that, you know, you're, you're hoping to, to talk to. For Ben Bradshaw campaigning from Exeter, it soon became clear what was going to happen and why. Many of us, I included, spent another whole summer on internal Labour Party politics and sat in a rented attic in my constituency phoning Labour members across the southwest of England, uh, canvassing their support for Owen Smith. Um, it wasn't particularly uh, encouraging because it was still clear that a majority of Labour members were not uh, prepared uh, to uh, make that switch yet. Uh, and some indeed uh, felt very angry that... Um, 
uh, we had dared get rid of him so quickly or dared challenge him so quickly. The membership as it was then was not in the psychological state of mind to admit that they'd been wrong a year earlier. This is a moment in British politics. Something has exploded beyond the norms of British politics in the body politic. And actually, the establishment are stepping in to try and snatch that away. And that, in fact, made more people volunteer, made more people donate. It made more trade unions get involved and built the scale of the campaign. And on the second leadership campaign, he went on to win by an even bigger margin. And therefore, conference delighted to declare Jeremy Colburn elected as leader of the Labour Party. Please. By the autumn of 2016, Jeremy Corbyn's position was stronger than ever before. He had won not one, but two leadership elections within a year, and both overwhelmingly. Despite that, Corbyn still struggled with the challenges leadership brings, as Cat recalls. He didn't like being the bad guy fundamentally, and ironically, he disliked conflict. The problem is that with moments like a reshuffle, you have to be the bad guy. In order to promote people, you've got to sack people. And first up for a sacking in the reshuffle of October 2016 was Rosie Winterton, the chief whip, who was seen by those in Corbyn's office as being actively unhelpful to him. According to people who were there at the time, Corbyn had called Winterton up, armed with a script that would help him deliver the final verdict, but he couldn't do it. So Rosie marched into his office... Uh, and her aides were barred from the door. And Corbyn still couldn't do it face to face. According to sources, there was one person in Corbyn's team who revelled in being the bad guy. That was Carrie Murphy. She stepped into the vacuum and there were tears, perhaps as a result of the sort of protracted, poorly executed manner of the execution. But the job was done. And that same reshuffle opened up bigger roles for Corbyn loyalists like Diane Abbott, who got Shadow Home Secretary, and Keir Starmer, who entered the Shadow Cabinet for the first time. Labour MPs who had opposed Corbyn had decisions to make. Carolyn Harris, MP for Swansea West and a friend of Keir Starmer's, was one of them. Starmer had also voted for Smith. And I imagine that Keir would have gone into it as well, knowing full well what we were letting ourselves in for. And it was a horrible, horrible, horrible time, that leadership competition. So neither of us would have backed Owen without thinking about the consequences. And there were consequences. Um, but Jeremy won again. And again, we had to make a decision as to whether we were going to serve the party or serve the man. And we both decided to serve the party. And that's what we did. One version of the events following the failure of what became known as the chicken coup was that in the new post-referendum world, Labour needed a competent shadow Brexit secretary, so Corbyn's office approached Starmer. He took on a responsibility for such a massive, massive brief with the Brexit that had, I think he's the only one who could have done that job at that time. Andrew Fisher, Corbyn's policy advisor, remembers it differently. The approach, he says, came from Starmer and happened before the vote on the leadership even took place. What's interesting is that you did get a few not people who had resigned in high profile ways and publicly kind of really attacked jeremy in the media like hillary ben unfortunately at that point um but others including keir starmer who by august were coming to have meetings with people in lotto not myself but he was you know I'd see, i saw him come up and i saw him have those meetings uh, and others 
um, you know, basically saying, and I paraphrase because I wasn't in the room, but from what I've been told, look, we know Owen Smith isn't going to win, but I want to serve on the front bench when Jeremy's re-elected. I think was trying to negotiate between being Shadow Home Secretary and Shadow Brexit Secretary in the case of Keir Starmer. So, yeah, and that was in, yeah, August 2016. So a month before Jeremy was formally re-elected, was saying, look, I want to serve. Corbyn allies were cynical about Sakir. He just did a good job of keeping his head down and working constructively with Corbyn, taking a brief that he knew would ally himself with the membership. Yeah, and then obviously biding his time. And surprisingly, Corbyn sceptics were also starting to have their doubts. Whichever it was, service to the party and the country, or careful positioning, or both, the need for a clever person who could command both strategy and detail as shadow Brexit secretary was obvious. So much was still unclear. The people had voted to leave the EU, but the terms of the referendum in no way specified what form that departure would take. James Meadway was John McDonnell's long-term advisor. Labour's policy was likely to be we will accept we will accept the vote because it's quite hard to turn around and say we won't. The more specific details, I think, on this is like, well, what does that mean? And that, I think, is where a degree of general indecision and confusion started to kick in, that we didn't really develop a, a distinctive Brexit position until really quite late on. The option that was floated even by Leavers before the Brexit vote of something like a, a Norway European economic area sort of relationship with the EU, which very rapidly got knocked out of the way, could have been something that Labour would have picked up on. I think that would have appealed to that sort of crowd of most people who voted Remain would probably think, OK, well, we're going to have to get on with this and try and make it work. The obvious course, given the closeness of the result, was to try and persuade the government to adopt a soft Brexit. The new Prime Minister, Theresa May, had been a Remain supporter. But the government's majority was thin and the most vocal section of the party was composed of those who wanted a hard Brexit. In January 2017, Theresa May outlined her Brexit means Brexit position in a speech at the Lancaster House Hotel. What I am proposing cannot mean membership of the single market. I do not want Britain to be part of the common commercial policy and I do not want us to be bound by the common external tariff, but I do want us to have a customs agreement with the EU. The resulting Conservative psychodrama was to dominate British politics for the next three years and the next two elections. Meanwhile, there was no way in which Labour could accept the Brexit that the Conservatives seemed determined to bring about. But how to oppose it without seeming to want to go back on the referendum itself? That task was contracted out by Labour's leader to Keir Starmer. Jeremy Corbyn himself had lots of other stuff to be getting on with. Coming up in the next episode, how 2017 became the high watermark of Corbynism. Eight Years Hard Labour was written and reported by me, David Aronovich. Additional reporting was by Kat Nealon. 
It was produced by Valerio Esposito. Sound design and original music by Tom Kinsella. Artwork by John Hill. The editor was Jasper Corbett. We hope you're enjoying this series. Make sure to follow the feed so you don't miss another episode and check out Tortoise's other award-winning investigative series while you wait for next week's episode. Tortoise.